Thank you for tuning into the Tulsa Bible Church Sermons Podcast. You are listening to Pastor Jared Verweel as he continues his sermon series in Exodus. If you'd like more information on this, you can visit our website at tulsabible.org. Have you guys ever seen a, uh, you ever seen a movie that when you get to the end, something truly unexpected jolting, just a surprise happens at the end of it that makes you want to go back and watch the movie again from the very beginning to make sense of it. You guys are, you guys are probably thinking, I shared this story in uh, the journey class not too long, just a few weeks ago. Have you guys ever seen Bruce Willis's Sixth Sense? That's, that's probably the one that comes to your mind the most, right? It's, it's a great movie. If you haven't seen it, I'm just going to give you a spoiler alert here. I'm going to ruin it for you, okay? So, just plug your ears if you don't want to hear this. But The Sixth Sense came out in 1999. It's fair to talk about this now. You guys haven't seen it. It's, it's been almost over 20 years, guys. So get off and go watch The Sixth Sense. It's important to you. Um, Bruce Willis plays this child psychologist. And as the movie opens up, he's receiving an award for his dedication and his mastery in the field of, of child psychology. He's with his wife at this dinner banquet. It's great. They leave the dinner banquet, they come home, only to realize that their house has an intruder in it, and it's one of the previous patients. Bruce Willis's character's name is Malcolm in that story. It's a previous patient of Malcolm. He's delusional. He's in their house, going through the place, and he actually wants to inflict harm upon this couple. And so this great fight ensues. There's a struggle. There's a gunshot. Malcolm gets shot in the story. It's a very traumatic experience through the whole thing. And, and you're led to believe as you watch the, the movie that Bruce Willis's character, Malcolm, is just, he's been, he's been hurt. He gets through this trauma. He makes it through there. But life continues on. And it picks up the story with his next, his next patient, this child that's going through some difficult times himself. But by the time you get to the end of the story, you realize that Malcolm didn't survive that scuffle at the beginning. When he was shot, he was actually killed. And it's M. Night Shyamalan's version of, of the afterlife in the story. And so he's really dead. He's talking to this other kid who's really dead in the story. So then when, you, when that part is revealed at the end, it makes you want to go all the way back to the very beginning of the story and watch the whole thing again. And all of a sudden, then the second time through, everything starts to make sense. Like, it, it just becomes really clear because you know the end at the beginning. Let me, let me give you another illustration. Um, some of you guys have worked, like, thousands of different jobs through your life. Right? I mean, I was, my first job, I was cutting grass as a kid. I think I was, like, 12, 13. I cut grass for a while, then I got a job picking range balls. You guys know those guys on the golf range that pick up the balls in the cart? Everybody tries to hit them with a ball. That was me. I did that for years uh, as a kid in high school. It was great. I loved it. I didn't, didn't, didn't mind getting shelled. Just had my music on. It was all good. Um, I worked uh, as a custodian. I cleaned toilets for a while at Dallas Seminary. I was a maintenance guy for a while. I worked at golf courses. I was an assistant pro for a while. Um, did, a, did a little bit of everything. And kind of towards end of seminary as I'm you know, working my way toward ministry, whatever God would have for me, at the time, I'm kind of thinking to myself, okay, God, you've got a plan and a purpose for me to have worked cutting grass, scrubbing toilets, picking golf balls, 
doing all these other, other things. But at the time, it, it just really didn't make any sense, right? Like, well, why am I here? Why am I, why am I doing this right now? But now that I'm in ministry, I've seen like all those years in maintenance. We've had stuff pops up around the church here. I can immediately help respond to those things and ha- have some kind of understanding of what's going on. I've been able to play golf with several people in the church here, create relationships that have uh, really helped out just to get involved with people and do ministry in that way. All of it has led to where I am right now. God's used all of that. But, but in the midst of it, it's really hard to see those things. Once you get to the end of it, you can kind of see, man, God had a purpose the whole time in bringing it through. I want to look at Exodus 11 and 12 this morning, and, and we're going to look at this passage. Really, when we read through it first, it, it seems to not make a whole lot of sense. We've got sacrifices, we've got rituals, we've got lambs involved, we've got the application of the blood on doorposts, and, and you read these stories and you're kind of thinking like, God, what is going on? I thought you were just taking slaves out of Egypt, redeeming them for your purpose to be your people, and, and we've got all these rituals that are taking place, and a lot of it, when we read through it the first time, it won't make sense to us. But then once you pick up in the Gospels and you read about Jesus and how he celebrated the Passover supper with his disciples. The last supper that he celebrated was a Passover meal. And all of a sudden, once you read that, and you go back to Exodus, oh, this is why that makes sense now. This is why that was there in the first place. You almost have to read the end into the beginning to understand what's going on here. So I want to do a little bit of that as we work our way through Exodus, and it's going to make a lot more sense as, as we do that. We're in Exodus 11 and 12. This is the last plague that God sends on Egypt. It's the 10th of 10 plagues. Uh, this is p- the Passover. This will launch us into Passover, the Pesach in Hebrew. Christians read this account like we watch the sixth sense. Christians read this account like we're going through these jobs. We don't know what they mean at the time, but then we get to that one and oh, here it is. This makes sense all of a sudden. Um, we're going to look at this account. We're going to ask three questions, okay? Number one, who needs the Passover? Number two, what is it exactly? And number three, how is it fulfilled in Christ? Number one, who needs the Passover? Number two, what exactly is it? Number three, how does it lead us to Christ? A really good way to study these chapters is to do a Passover Seder. If any of you guys have had the experience of going through that, um, in, uh, in the Jewish religion, they still go through some of these ceremonies and rituals today, and it's blatantly obvious how Christ is fulfilled in the Passover and the Seder meal. It's, it's a really cool thing. If you get a chance to do that, I would encourage you to do it. I'm going to approach it a little bit differently this morning. Um, last week, we took a, a very, or two weeks ago, Scott was preaching last week, we took a very surface-level view, big-picture view of the plagues. And what we said about the plagues were two things. As the plagues unfold in the account of Exodus, what you're seeing is a polemic, a conflict between the one true God of Israel and all the false gods of Egypt. All right, and so behind the plagues, these these things happen in cycles of three. We'll talk about that in just a little bit. But behind the plagues, the plague is not a divine conflict between Moses and Pharaoh. 
It's not a divine conflict between the nation of Egypt and the people of Israel. Behind the plagues, underneath the plagues, and really ingrained in how this comes across to us, is this divine cosmic battle between the one true God of Israel and all the false gods of Egypt. And over and over again, what you, what you see depicted in the Exodus account in the plagues, there is no battle, right? All these false gods that were supposed to control the Nile, control the crops, control the cattle, control fertility in Egypt, all of them were supposed to be their gods that were in control of all of those things. When the God of Israel shows up, the one true God of heaven, he overcomes them with the word of his mouth. There is no battle in this battle. God is clearly more powerful. He is more sovereign. He is stronger. He is mightier at every turn of the page when you read the plague story. So you've got this deep polemic that's ingrained in the plagues. The other thing we said about the plagues is it's that it teaches a reversal of creation or, or a decreation, if we can say that, where God initially created light in Genesis and the plagues, the ninth plague is a plague of darkness, right? Where God initially fills the earth with vegetation, You've got plagues that kill all the vegetation, uh, the pestilence that comes into Egypt and to their crops, uh, where man rules over creation as God's imagers rule over creation, subdue it is what it says in Genesis chapter 1. Now you see creation ruling over man. We've got frogs that are everywhere. What do we do about this? We've got flies and, and lice that's everywhere. How are we going to overcome all of these things that are happening? Pharaoh in essence, is rejecting God's creative order. He's rejecting God's place as the sovereign creator of the world and everything in it. And it's all led us leading up now to a tenth plague, a final plague, which is the death of the firstborn of everybody in Egypt, both Israel and Egypt. Israel is not exempt from this plague. So in Exodus 7 through 10, you've got nine plagues that go through Egypt. And Egypt is decimated. Uh, their economy is, has crumbled. Their livelihood is at stake. Everything that's happening through this whole account says there is something significant about Moses, Aaron, and this, this God of the Israelites that we need to recognize. Uh, Exodus chapter 10, look down at verse 7. I want to read this verse. Exodus 10, 7. Finally, Pharaoh's servants said to him, to Pharaoh, how long shall this man, Moses, be a snare to us? Let the men of Israel go that they might serve the Lord their God. Do you not yet understand that Egypt is ruin? Listen, we're at a point now in the text where even Pharaoh's servants are coming to Pharaoh and saying, uh, listen, buddy, like it's obvious that there's something going on here. We might just need to slow our roll and listen to what Moses is saying. And let the people of Israel go. But Pharaoh still doesn't want to let the people of Israel go. Instead of doing a complete obedience, he does a partial obedience. And, and you're seeing that his, his heart has just been totally enslaved and captured by sin. We haven't talked about the hardening of Pharaoh's heart in this context, but that's exactly what's happened. And, and there's two resources I go to to really understand the process of sin and how it works in the heart. One of them is by Paul Tripp, Instruments in the Hands of the Redeemer. He talks about this. And uh, Ken Sandy in his book, Peacemakers, he talks about this. It's very, very good. 
Um, but there's a way that sin works in our hearts. And you for sure see this in the account of the plagues in Egypt and the account of Pharaoh. So all, all sin starts with desire. God created us with desires. Desires are good. Desires for uh, sex with a person of the opposite sex is a good God-given desire. A desire to lead your family, a desire to, um, to raise your family in a way that honors God. That's a good, godly desire. We all have desires, and desires aren't necessarily bad. They can become bad when desire takes the next step of demand. When we go from desire, I want, to demand, I must have, it's the demand is the closing of the fist around our desires. Now I want that thing, that person, whatever it is, so bad, I demand to have it. And when demand leads to need, that's when the cycle has almost gone too far and you can't stop the domino effect. Because I must have this so bad that I'm willing to do whatever it takes to get it and to feel whatever satisfaction or to enjoy whatever thing I'm hoping is going to happen. Um, desire, demand leads to need. Need leads to expectation. I need this Bob so bad that I expect you to give it to me. And guess what? If you're not going to help me get what I want, then you're the problem and I'm going to be disappointed with you. And if I'm disappointed with you, Harold, because you didn't give me what I wanted, then I'm going to start punishing you. And I'm going to make life miserable for you. What do you see Pharaoh doing in the account of the plagues? Uh, guess what, Moses? I'm not going to let you go. In fact, go make the same quota of bricks, but I'm not going to give you the straw. I'm going to punish you because you're not giving me what I want and what I feel like I need through this situation. And so you've got this war path that's going on in Pharaoh's heart as he is captured and enslaved by his own self-will and by his own sin. And it happens in the heart of all of us when we struggle with sin. There's a little tiny Pharaoh sitting on the throne of our hearts. Every time we have a desire that leads to a demand, that leads to a need, to an expectation, to disappointment, to all of the things that you're seeing here in, in Pharaoh's heart and his life. Now, even after nine plagues, even after Egypt is effectively dismantled, however you want to look at that, Pharaoh will only let the men go and serve God and worship him for three days in the wilderness. But everybody else has to say, has to say. So if the men go and all the women, the wives and the children are still back in Egypt, effectively the men would come back, is Pharaoh's reasoning there. All right? And later on in chapter 10, verse 24, he changes his mind about that. He says, okay, Moses, Aaron, for sure, all your people can go out into the wilderness to worship God, but now the flocks and the herds will have to stay in Egypt. You can't take the flocks and the herds because if you take all those people out into the wilderness without the flocks and the herds, you're not going to be able to live. You won't have any sustenance. You won't have any food. So keep the flocks and the herds back. Look at um, chapter 10, verse 24. Then Pharaoh called, this is a good example of this, Pharaoh called Moses and said, go serve the Lord. Your little ones also may go with you. Only let your flocks and your herds remain behind. So again, he shows this partial obedience, but it's not a total obedience. It's a half-hearted listening. It's not a whole-hearted listening. 
And there's a biblical principle behind this text. We, we could spend a lot of time, I'll talk more about sin, especially as we get into the wilderness wanderings. But the biblical principle here, at least one, not all folly is sin, but all sin is foolishness. Not all folly is sin, but all sin is foolishness. I want you to hang on with me here. Pharaoh is a great example of how we even at times try to reason and rationalize our sin. For some reason, sin in rebelling against God doesn't look that bad to Pharaoh. And I love what one theologian says. He says, sin and evil spend a lot of time on makeup. And for evil to do its worst, sin has to look its best. Right? So sometimes when we see sin and it doesn't look that bad to us, it is complete evil and it is disguising itself as an angel of light, right? Even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. Just because something looks like it might be good, it seems like it might be good, doesn't mean it's good. Pharaoh shows us that sin is both wrong and stupid. It is wrong and dumb. Sin is unreasonable, irrational, and it is out of touch with reality. Cornelius Plantinga says that sin hurts other people and it grieves God, but it also corrodes us. Pharaoh doesn't realize what sin is doing on his own heart and how it's corroding himself, his desires, and his will. If you, when you sin with your will, you will find your, your will weakened more and more over time. Your self-will will be captured by your sin. If you sin with your actions, you will find that your actions are getting weaker and weaker as time goes along. As you build up a tolerance effect to your sin, it is wreaking havoc and it is corroding your heart and in your life. Uh, Milton has a great quote here. He says, Only a fool would rise from his flaming ruins, look out across a dismal situation, waste and wild, filled with huge affliction and dismay, and declare, It is better to reign in hell than serve in heaven. That's the biography of Pharaoh. And that's what we say to ourselves every time we choose our own way instead of choosing God's way. Pharaoh's sin was self-deceiving. Sin, by nature, is self-deceiving. One theologian put it this way, self-deception is a shadowy phenomenon by which we pull the wool over some part of our own psyche. We put a move on ourselves when we sin. We deny, suppress, and minimize what we know to be true. We assert, adorn, and elevate what we know to be false. We beautify ugly realities and sell ourselves the beautified version of it. Why? Because sin is foolish. It is irrational and it is unreasonable. Pharaoh just can't see it. It's easy to see that Pharaoh has a sin problem here, but it's, it's much harder to see Israel has a sin problem too. Who needs the Passover? Egypt. Pharaoh needs the Passover? Absolutely. But the Israelites need the Passover as well. And I want to explain this by, by pointing out the 10th plague is completely different than all the other plagues before it. Remember we said that these plagues happen in, in triads of three. The 10th is the culminating plague. It's the one that brings them all to a pinnacle. Remember, these distinct triads we had, plagues one through three go together, four through six, seven through nine. Almost all the other plagues, Moses or Aaron will go to Pharaoh and warn him before the plague comes. There's no warning here before the last plague. The introduction is unique in this plague. In Exodus chapter 11, 
you're going to read that the people of Israel are to go to the Egyptians and ask for the best of their gold and silver jewelry before the plague comes to them. That is unique. That hasn't happened through all the plagues up to this point in time in the, in the account. The timing of the plague is unique. Most of the plagues, Moses or Aaron would go to Pharaoh in the morning, declare a warning to them. The plague would start to wreak havoc during the daytime. Here, the plague goes out and it says, at midnight, this is what's going to happen. So the timing is unique. Look, out, look down at Exodus 11, verse 4. And we're just going to skip through a lot of this. I'll, once we get to chapter 12, I'll read a bigger section, okay? Exodus 11, verse 4. So Moses said, Thus says the Lord about midnight, I will go out in the midst of Egypt. Now, you might think of midnight as the beginning of a new day. In our calendar system, the way that we reckon time, it wasn't that way in the ancient Near East. Days either started at sundown or sun up in the ancient Near East. Uh, Israel's day officially started at sunup, at dusk, because they take it back to creation. Day one, God created light. When the light is there on day one, that's when our day of the week starts. Our days start when light shows up. For ancient civilizations, days began at dawn or dusk. Uh, midnight then became the deepest, darkest hour of vulnerability during the nighttime. Midnight, most people are asleep in the ancient Near East. That's still true today. Most people are asleep at midnight. If you're not asleep at midnight, go to sleep. <laughs> Bad things happen that late at night, okay? So make good decisions and, and go to bed and get some rest, all right? Um, it's the time, midnight is the time of deepest vulnerability and defenselessness, especially in ancient cultures. Uh, verse 6, when you skip down to verse 6, there shall be a great outcry throughout the land of Egypt that has never been before and never will be again. That outcry likely did not happen at midnight. That outcry probably happened when the firstborn, the families of the firstborn were waking up in the morning and realizing that somebody had died in their house. Uh, some commentators say that the firstborn didn't affect just the males, during this last plague, that it also affected the females, because in chapter 12 of Exodus, it'll talk about every household of Egypt was affected by the plague of the firstborn, the death of the firstborn. And so think through those impl implications a little bit. A great outcry happened, but the destroyer visits Egypt and Israel at midnight. Look down at verse 7, chapter 11. It says, not a dog shall growl, is what the ESV says. Your text might say something a little bit different there. Not a dog shall growl against any of the people of Israel, either man or beast, so that you may know that the Lord makes a distinction between Egypt and Israel. How do you know if you're a good theologian? The answer is that you have dogs, you don't have cats, okay? <laughs> dogs, bear with me here, dogs know who their owner is. All right, we've got a little pup, little furry thing. His name is Reba, all right? And she is the cutest little, she is a hellion, is what she is. She's teething right now. She bites everything, all right? But she's a cute little dog. There's a reason why I don't have a cat. I tell my dog what to do, and it does it. I tell a cat what to do, it tells me what to do. <laughs> they got their theology backwards, okay? You need a good, sovereign, lordship theology to have a pet. 
dogs in the ancient Near East are different than they are today in America. A lot of you guys have, I'm a dog, I'm a dog fan. I love dogs. A lot of you guys have great dogs. Dogs were looked upon differently in, in Israel and in ancient Near East. Dogs were scavengers. They were mongrels. Um, they, were, they were a nuisance. Ancient cultures looked at dogs the way that we look at rats in the city. Uh, when the text here says in verse 7 that a dog shall not growl against any of the people of Israel, here's what it's saying. The most despicable creature that you can fathom will still even recognize the God of Israel. During this plague, the rats of the city will come out and they will recognize the God of Israel is doing something specific and unique that he has not done with any other people group up until this time in history. But the biggest difference of the, of the plague, I'm talking about differences, the 10th from all the other nine before it, is the provision to avert disaster. The provision to avert disaster. The Israelites were just as vulnerable to the plague of the firstborn, the death of the firstborn, as the Egyptians were. Um, in Exodus verse 11, verse 5, look at that again. Every firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sits on the throne. That's the highest of social status, even to the firstborn of the slave girl who is behind the handmill. That's, that's the Egyptian slaves. That's the lowest of social status, from the most significant to the least significant, from the most powerful to the most marginalized and defenseless. Uh, everybody is going to realize that the firstborn is going to affect everybody in the land. All of the firstborn of the cattle even are affected by this. Um, in Exodus 12, verse 13, as they sprinkle the blood on the doorposts, the blood shall be a sign to you, uh, the houses where you are, that God is with the people of Israel. Um, hang on to the Exodus 12 passage. No one is exempt from the final plague because no one is exempt from sin. No one is exempt from the final plague because nobody is exempt from sin and the punishment and condemnation because of sin. Pharaoh is the quintessential fool who lacked wisdom. And because he lacked wisdom, he had no fear of God. The beginning of the fear of God is wisdom, Proverbs says. Wisdom is the knowledge of God's world. It's the discernment of where we fit in it. And Pharaoh had neither of those. A wise person knows creation, boundaries and limits, laws and rhythms, how things work and how God has designed it. Wisdom is a reality-based phenomenon. It's the reality of, of the world in which we live and how God designed it. A wise person gives in to creation first, and then they give in to God because they know that when they give in to creation at the very same time, they are giving in to the God who created it. They do the first knowing that the second comes along with it. Uh, Pharaoh and humanity, apart from God, didn't give in to God. They set themselves up as their own masters, their own ruler, their own sovereign authority over their own lives. Even after all the plagues, his heart was still hardened. And that's true of, of people who reject Christ every single day. Who needs the Passover? Everybody. Everybody needs the blood of the Passover lamb. All right? Number two, what exactly is it? Uh, look at your text now again. Let's read Exodus 12, 1 through 13, and this is the uh, biggest part that I'll read, okay? 
Exodus 12, 1 through 13. Good grief. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, verse 2, this month shall be for you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year for you. Tell all the congregation of Israel that on the 10th day of this month, every man shall take a lamb according to their father's houses, a lamb for a household. And if the household is too small for a lamb, then he and his nearest neighbor shall take according to the number of persons, according to what each can eat, you shall make your count for the lamb. The lamb shall be without blemish, a male, a year old. You shall take it from the sheep or from the goats. You shall keep it until the 14th day of the month when the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight. I think that might be one of the first mentions of the congregation of Israel as this people group in your text that happens at this Passover celebration. Verse 7, then they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and on the lintel of the houses in which they eat it. They shall eat the flesh that night, roasted on the fire with unleavened bread and bitter herbs. They shall eat it. Do not eat any of it raw or boiled in water, but roasted its head with its legs and its inner parts. You shall let none of it remain until the morning. Anything that remains until morning you shall burn. In this manner you shall eat it. With your belt fastened, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand. You shall eat it in haste, for it is the Lord's Passover. Verse 12, for I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike, pay attention to the verbs here, I will pass through, that's Pesach, I will strike the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and on the, all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. I will pass over, I will strike, I will judge. Verse 13, the blood shall be a sign for you in the houses where you are. When I see the blood, I will pass over you, and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. Now, verses 1 and 2 present a brand new religious calendar to Israel, all right? Uh, you'll read about two new years in Israel's calendar. There's a religious new year, and there's an agricultural new year. Agricultural new year happens in the fall, the September, October months when the harvest comes in. The religious new year happens in the spring. It's about this time, March and April, uh, identified by the Passover. The Passover was so important to their calling in history that it started a brand new year for the people of Israel. Their religious calendar began in March and April through this Passover celebration. Again, it's different than the feast of the uh, ingathering, the harvest, or the tabernacles that you'll read about other places in the Old Testament. God was teaching Israel that even the measuring of their days will, will start with their calling by God. Even how they orchestrate their entire worship calendar is going to start with their calling by God in this Passover celebration. At the heart of the Passover is the lamb, verses 3 through 6. The first thing that's talked about, the word that's repeated over and over again is lamb in this context, the selection of the lamb. You select the lamb, verses 3 through 6, on the 10th day. And the purpose of doing that was to examine it very carefully. Every family member in Egypt, whoever was going to take a part of that Passover meal, would examine the lamb for themselves. I want you to pay special attention to a pronoun in verse 5. Look at Exodus 12, verse 5. Does your text say, your lamb? Your lamb shall be without blemish. Not a lamb, 
not the Passover lamb, not a lamb that's been found, not a lamb that your neighbor necessarily eats, although that's probably included, your specific lamb. This lamb was personally inspected by the family who would sacrifice, and they would care for it. It reminds us of Jesus, whose triumphal entry happened on the 10th day of Nisan in Jerusalem. As carefully, Jesus was the lamb that was carefully inspected. He was inspected by the Jewish people. The Jewish people honored him as their Messiah. Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Then he was examined by the high priest officials. Caiaphas and the Sanhedrin and all of the religious leaders inspected him thoroughly before they crucified him. At the beginning of the week, Palm Sunday, we celebrate Jesus. He was inspected as the King of kings and the Lord of lords. By the end of the week, the lamb is slaughtered on Good Friday. Theologians say that over a third of all the Gospels take place in the Passion Week. Why? It's Lamb Inspection Week. We're inspecting Jesus. Is he the perfect lamb without blemish, without spot? The sacrifice given for the sins of the world. Verse 5, your lamb should be perfect without blemish. What's the purpose of that? Does an unspotted lamb taste a little bit better than the spotted ones? Uh, Does a blind lamb taste a little bit eh, not so as tasty as the ones who can see perfectly? No, this isn't talking about menu options and taste. This is a symbolic reference to a perfection that goes deeper for a religious ceremony and, and a religious ritual. Perfection is not for the quality of the meat. It is symbolic because God's holiness demands perfection. Justice requires a perfect fulfillment to be met by a perfect, just God. God provided perfectly for his people. He perfectly submitted to the wrath of God. There was not one ounce of God's wrath that wasn't completely and perfectly satisfied in the Lamb of God in Jesus Christ. Not a bone was broken of the animal. The animal was was completely roasted, flesh and all. That's Jesus hanging on the cross. Not a bone was broken of his body until the very end, right? Um, Note, verse 7 tells the worshiper what to do with the blood before it says what to do with anything else regarding this animal. You know, if if you and I were going to go sacrifice an animal, kill an animal, and eat it, here's what we would do. Any guys hunters out there? First thing I would do is if if it's your first kill, I would take a little blood of the animal and smear it on your face, right? Because that's what you do with your first kill. The second thing you would do is you would field dress the thing. You would gut it, right? You don't want to take all the guts and stuff back unless you're on a four-wheeler or something. You can hang the thing. But you would do all kinds of stuff. Nothing in this text says anything about what to do with the guts or anything like that. It simply says, here's the deal. We're going to shed blood, and the shedding of the blood and the application of the blood is the most important thing to think about with this lamb. So let's talk about the blood Here's the first thing. How you handle the blood of the lamb is extremely important. Why? Because the life of the flesh is in the blood. Leviticus chapter 17, verse 11. And it is the life by way of the blood that gives life to creatures and gives life from God. How do you apply the blood? Here's what we're going to do. We're going to smear a little bit right here. You're going to smear a little bit right here on the doorposts. And then you're going to put a little bit on the top piece. Does that look familiar to you guys in Exodus? This is a, a great picture of the crucifixion of Jesus who will come 
uh, centuries later. Verses 8 through 11 are the prescriptions on how to eat the animal. And everything about uh, this, the way that you eat it is described to show that this needs to be done in haste. It needs to be done very, very quickly. Right? We're about to be redeemed. We're about to leave our homes, everything we had in Egypt, and we're about to start a brand new life. And so this last meal is not going to be a take your time, enjoy it, sit at the table, sit back, and you know, enjoy your wine meal. This is going to be a quick meal. All aspects of the cooking were designed to minimize the time it took to cook this animal and to maximize the time of preparation. This is a major issue of faith for the people of Israel. They have to believe these words that Moses is saying, that they will in fact be redeemed out of Egypt on this 10th day before the sacrifice ever happens. They have to believe that what he says is true. Do you really believe that I'm redeeming you from slavery in Egypt after 430 years? If you do, start this process and then cook this thing super fast. We got to get ready. It is time to move out of Egypt. There are no pots involved. There is no washing. There is no waiting for any water to boil. You get the fire rolling and you roast this thing quickly. And then you're going to eat it to completion. If anything's left over, you burn that at the beginning of the next day. Passover was not only the celebration that happened at this time. There were three other feasts that come along at the time of Passover for Israel's calendar. Number one is the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And anybody like to like deep down clean their house? You do spring cleanings at your house? That's a, that's a Jewish practice. If you go to the land of Israel in, on November 29th for $4,000 with me, Brad, and Scott, if you go there, here's what you're going to realize. Um, Israel, the land, is a very clean people. They were probably one of the very first people groups that um, took, started junkyards. They took their trash to one specific place and they burned it for the cleanliness. Uh, spring cleaning is this idea that comes from the Feast of Unleavened Bread. You clean your house from top to bottom in the spring. Get all those germs, all the things out of it. Not an ounce of leaven can be found anywhere. And so the Feast of Unleavened Bread is the, is the feast that starts this whole beginning of the year for Israel and as they lead to Passover. The Passover celebration and the other feast that will occur is the Feast of the First Fruits of the Harvest. The First Fruits happens as the harvest begins to come to fruition as a, a prayer and a trust that God is going to supply the rest of the harvest as they get later into that first month of the year. And of course, we know the first fruits from 1 Corinthians chapter 15. This is Jesus who raises from the dead three days after death. He is the first fruits from God. All of these things that are shadows in the Old Testament are fulfilled with reality and substance in the New Testament through Christ. The things that are in the Old Testament concealed are the things in Jesus in the New Testament that are revealed. Everything leads up to the personal work of Christ. How does the Passover lead up to Christ? I'm glad you asked. Turn to Luke chapter 22. And this is where we'll close it off this morning. Luke chapter 22 is my very favorite account of the Last Supper with Jesus and his disciples. Look down at verse 7. Luke 22, verse 7. 
Luke 22, 7 says this, Then came the day of unleavened bread, on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. So Jesus sent Peter and John, saying, Go prepare the Passover for us, that we may eat it. And they said to him, Where will you have us to prepare it? He said to them, Behold, when you have entered the city, a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him into the house that he enters. And tell the master of the house, the teacher says to you, Where is the guest room where I might eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room furnished. Prepare it there. They went and they found it just as they had told him, and they, pre- and they prepared the Passover. When the hour had came, he reclined at the table with the apostles with him. And he said to, him, said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer, for I tell you, I will not eat of it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of heaven. Now, here, we're at the end of the story, the earthly life of Christ here, right? And the, just like the sixth sense, something happens here that is completely startling. Something happens that everybody in that room that was partaking of the Last Supper with Jesus would have absolutely known without a shadow of a doubt. The real mystery is, is why there's not a little bit more in the text as we read this. But you've got to infer from what's there and what's not there that this is the case during this meal with Jesus in Luke chapter 22. What is the most central part of the Passover for Egypt or for Israel in Egypt? It's the lamb. It's the sacrifice of the lamb. What is the most central theme of the Passover with Jesus? It's the lamb. Where is the lamb? There's no mention of a lamb in Luke 22. There's no mention of a lamb in any of the counts in all the synoptic gospels. And the answer is the lamb is not on the table because the lamb is at the table. The lamb is not on the table because the lamb is at the table. John 1, 29, when John the Baptist saw Jesus, he said, Behold the Lamb of God. At the very beginning of his ministry, 1 Corinthians 5, verse 7, Paul says, For Christ, our Passover Lamb, has been sacrificed, past tense. When you look at the Last Supper with the disciples and the Lord's Supper and how we celebrate it, you have to go back to Exodus chapter 6, 6 and 7. That was a verse we covered pretty quickly when we were there. And I just want to read this for you, okay? Exodus 6, 6 and 7 says this, Therefore, say to the people of Israel, I am the Lord. I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. Promise number one. Number two, I will deliver you from slavery to them. Number three, I will redeem you with an outstretched arm with great acts of judgment. Number four, I will take you to be my people I will be your God, and you shall know that I am the Lord your God who has brought you out from under the burden of the Egyptians. Passover in Israel was celebrated with four cups, four cups of wine that relate to those four promises in Exodus chapter 6, verse 6 and 7. And the first cup was a cup of sanctification. Now look down at Luke, verse 22, or chapter 22, verse 17, excuse me. And he took a cup, and we had given thanks. He said, take this and divide it among yourselves. Here's here's what's unique about Luke's account of the Passover meal. Luke is the one gospel writer that will mention multiple cups. This is one way that you know that this was a Seder 
Passover meal that Jesus was celebrating with his disciples because there were multiple cups being taught and shared with the disciples in that upper room. The first cup that they would have drunk, drank, drunk, drank. The first cup that they would have drank, thank you, uh, would have been the cup of sanctification. The cup of sanctification separated Israel from all other people, but especially from the Egyptians. The cup of sanctification says, I'm going to do something different. I'm going to separate you from all the other people groups on the face of the earth. I will bring you out. I will separate you from them. There's no mention of the cup of sanctification in Luke's account. The first cup that we have is the cup of deliverance. And the cup of deliverance was the cup that relates to the second promise in Exodus 6, 6 and 7, which is, I will deliver you from slavery. There's no mention that Jesus drinks from the cup of deliverance in this context. Jesus gives the cup of deliverance to the disciples, right? He took a cup when he had given thanks. Verse 17, he said, you take this and divide it among yourselves. For I tell you that from now on, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. Why? They drink the cup of deliverance. Jesus will not be delivered from the wrath of God. He will drink the wrath of God to the dregs while he gives the cup of deliverance to his disciples who don't deserve it. The one who didn't deserve the wrath of God drank it to the full. The one who did deserve the wrath of God got the cup of deliverance instead. That's grace. That's the gospel through the Passover. All right? The third cup is the cup of redemption. It relates to the third promise in Exodus 6, 6, and 7. And it says, I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with a mighty hand. All right, the cup of redemption is probably verse 20. Look at verse 19. He took bread when he had given thanks. He broke it. He gave it to them. This is my body, which is given to you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, the cup after they had eaten, saying, this is the cup that is poured out for you. It is the new covenant in my blood. That is the cup of redemption. Freedom from slavery is poured out for you. As I deliver you from slavery in Egypt, you drink of redemption because of what I had to drink before the Father. Fourthly is the cup of praise. I will take you to be my people. You shall be my people, and I shall be your God. When Jewish families celebrate this, the first cup of sanctification, why is this night different from all the other nights? That's not in Luke, but it happened. It's different because this is why. I will separate you from all the other nations on the, kingdom of, on the face of the planet. You are my people, and I will redeem you. 1 Peter 1, verse 18 and 19 says this, Knowing that you were redeemed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things like gold or silver, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without spot or blemish. When you read that end to the story, it brings Exodus alive, does it not? You see Jesus as the perfect Passover lamb who is sacrificed for us. Because of what he did for us, we have deliverance, redemption, sanctification. We have all these promises that come through the, the rescue of Israel out of Egypt, out of slavery. The greatest act of deliverance that could ever be depicted and is depicted in the Bible 
is not deliverance from slavery in Egypt. It's not deliverance from sins that you and I might struggle with, whatever they might be. It's not deliverance of a a people group that's being overcome by a stronger people group, the greatest deliverance that has ever depicted, that ever happened and ever occurred in human history was the deliverance and the redemption of slavery from sin that Jesus, our Passover lamb, secured for us when he poured out his blood on Calvary's cross. And because of what Jesus did for us, we are redeemed, we are delivered, we are taken by God as his people. And we can praise with the people of God that we have experienced the grace that you and I do not deserve and never could earn. Let's pray. Father in heaven, um, Lord, we thank you that you have worked in mighty and awesome ways in the past to redeem your people. Uh, Thank you for the shadows of the Passover in the Old Testament that become reality through Christ. I thank you for selecting a people not because they are strong or mighty or significant, but for the very opposite reason, because they were insignificant weak and helpless without you. I thank you that we can see ourselves as a symbolic representation of of Israel in many ways spiritually. We have been enslaved to our sin apart from you, but because of what Christ has done for us, we can experience redemption and deliverance. The Passover lamb has been sacrificed on our behalf. Lord, you drank the full wrath of God. You took it upon yourself, and you allow us to drink deliverance and redemption and the promises of God. How in your infinite wisdom you would have ever thought that that plan or wisdom um, in any way that we would be worthy or significant enough for that is beyond us. God, we are so insignificant in your sight and yet you have done all this for us because of your great love for us. Remind us of that. Lord, remind us of the depth and the truth of the gospel. Um, continue to implant that on our hearts as we struggle with, on the war path of, of sin to the hearts, as we have desires and demands and expectations and needs. Lord, remind us of what you've done to overcome that. Remind us of who we are in Christ, because our Passover has been sacrificed for us. Remind us of forgiveness. Uh, give us a strong identity in you. We ask all these things to you, Father, through the Son and by the Spirit. For you three are the one true God, and there is no God besides you. Amen. Amen. Amen.